The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How's that? Oh, that's loud. Did I make it too loud? Okay. So, uh, thank you, Kim, for inviting me, and thanks to all of you for coming today. I've been here before talking about Menindraji, but I don't see familiar faces, so I hope that what I share will be new to most of you. I'm supposed to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been practicing in the Theravada tradition since my first retreat in India in 1981. So it's getting close to 35 years, which tells me how old I am. But uh, I can still remember in vivid detail that first retreat and how it changed my life. And so besides practicing... um, I also have a PhD in Asian and Comparative Studies. I did my dissertation on wise speech. And there's a long story behind how I wound up writing about Menindraji. It all started with being on a month-long retreat at the Forest Refuge. But a lot of stories are in this book. And I I brought a few copies in case anybody would like to get one. and I brought a bunch of postcards. I established a, a scholarship in Manindraji's memory at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, so all proceeds go to that scholarship fund. I think I need to uh, start with a disclaimer. Uh, I want to be clear that I'm not here as someone who has formally chosen to live as a lay renunciate. I've done very long retreats, but... In my daily life, I'm aware of renouncing, you know, this or that as I go as I go through my day. But it's not anything formal like an upasata day. Just what I'm watching in my mind. So instead, I was invited so that I could introduce a person who quite decisively elected to spend his life as an anagarika or as... Um, Kim just explained, a homeless one. For those of you who are already familiar with Menindra, you know that he was Joseph Goldstein's first Vipassana teacher. And all this started in Bodhgaya in the late 60s. And I would say that in great part, we have a mindfulness movement in the West because of Menindraji, because of all the Westerners that he taught early on and who then wound up sharing the practice with, I don't know, it's probably hundreds of thousands of people at this point, maybe millions. I hope that uh, some of the stories I share will help in understanding his choice even more and that you will find him a useful model of someone who is deeply committed to the Dharma without having to be a monk. Manindraji was, he was one of these rare individuals who demonstrate seamless integration. He never had 
of feeling of conflict or separation between his daily life and his spiritual practice. And he was someone who was at home in his body, wherever he was, at any time, under any conditions. He was happy and at peace with himself and in harmony with others. A rare individual. And you could feel this when you were in his presence. For Manindra, spiritual life was not limited to meditating in silence, living in a monastery, or attending intensive retreats. Rather, when people would ask him, Manindraji, what is the Dharma? And he would say, the Dhamma is living the life fully. And my um, publisher, Shambhala, insisted that Americans won't get it, so we had to make it living this life fully. They wouldn't, cause, because that was Manindraji's way of speaking English. Anyway, so I'd like to start with giving you um, a little background about Manindra to uh, help you understand how he came to his choice. When I was researching the book, I interviewed about 200 people around the world who had known him. I stayed with his family in Calcutta. I interviewed his students, his colleagues, and friends. And the more I learned about him, especially from interviews that Manindraji gave Robert Pryor, who was my collaborator on the book, um, and who was with him in Bodh Gaya for many years in a um, Buddhist studies exchange program, the more I realized how early the seeds were sown for his renunciate life. First, he was born in 1915 in a small village near Chittagong in what was then called Bengal. But it became East Pakistan after the partition of India in 1947, and then it became Bangladesh when um, the country seceded from Pakistan. Manindra was born into a Buddhist family that was part of the Barua clan, and it, his name was Manindra Barua. And this clan traces its roots to the time of the Buddha. And those of you who are familiar with Deepama, her name was also Deepa, uh, not De- Deepa was, Deepama was mother of Deepa. Deepa was her daughter, is her daughter. But Bar- her last name was Barua. So she was in this same clan. Even though they weren't uh, cousins, at least, Nobody knew whether they were really cousins, but people had this name, like people here have the name Smith or Jones. Uh, An interesting thing, when he was very young, uh, born, astrologers told his parents that he would be a gifted teacher and not a householder. Manindra spoke highly of his parents and their excellent care of him. His father instilled in him a love of learning and books, as well as a tolerant attitude toward their Hindu and Muslim neighbors in nearby villages. I remember Manindraji saying, everybody lived very peacefully together. What happened later was a travesty. And his mother was a model of loving kindness. While Manindra was still living with his family, this was quite rare, his father became a a Shramanera, a novitiate monk. But he still lived with them and continued his responsibility to the family. And there's, a, there's more of an explanation in the book about how because of this, because he didn't separate himself out and just abandon his family, they were ostracized. 
And it's also one of the reasons why Manindraji was always so kind in his speech toward others because he knew what it was like to be slandered by a a whole community. In the book, I also relate stories about his not wanting to get married. His parents tried to arrange one marriage after another, but on each occasion, something curious happened, including the girl dying, a young girl just walking down the, the road and then suddenly being sick and dying, and so he never married. And uh, I should say that it wasn't because Manindraji had was a misogynist. He had no negative feelings toward women whatsoever. In fact, he treated them as equals, which is one of the reasons why his women students loved him so much. He, he, never, um, he never thought that they had lesser capacity to uh, achieve any attainment in the practice. Anyway, once it became clear that he would not become a, house- a householder, his parents gave him permission to leave. So in 1936, he went to Calcutta, where he stayed at the Bengal Buddhist Association, and he studied Pali and Abhidhamma. He attended lectures at the Mahabodhi Society, which was founded in 1891 by Anagarika and he became another model for Manindra, just like his father was. As a result, Manindra adopted the lifestyle of Anagarika. Many fascinating events took place in Manindraji's life, including trekking over the Himalayas to go meet the Dalai Lama when, he was only, when the Dalai Lama was only 15 years old. But in, I, I can't go into all those stories. They're in the book. And um, I'm just going to briefly mention instead his time in Burma, which was from 1957 to 1966. This was a dream come true for him when he was invited to go over there and practice. So he had, um, he was, he practiced intensively with Mahasi Sayadaw and then spent many years studying the Pali Canon and Abhidhamma. He was ordained as a monk during his last year in Burma. However, Once he decided to return to India, he also decided to give up his monk's robes, and he asked Mahasi Sayadaw to give him permission to do so. He explained that it would be more effective to teach in India as an Anagarika than it would be as a monk. And so from then on, he wore simple white robes. What I remember, um, and I should tell you that I knew Manindraji when he used to come visit. Um, I was very close with Kamala Masters. We organized retreats and went on retreats together when I lived on Maui for about nine years. And Manindraji used to come and stay at her house, which is how I got to know him. And people would come, Sharon would come, Joseph, other people would come to see him. What I remember is that Manindra was keen on reaching as many people as possible. His personality was such that he needed to be free and unrestricted in his interactions with the individuals he encountered, including women. And that would not have been possible as a Theravada monastic. He also was undoubtedly aware that India, not being a Buddhist country, like Burma or Thailand or Sri Lanka, would be a difficult place to live as a monk. The nation as a whole, and communities in particular, would not support him. 
His life was precarious anyway, and as a monk, it would have been even worse. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he returned to India to live once again in Bodh Gaya, he began to meet foreigners and to teach, teach them, and that was when Joseph came. And it was what so many of those people told me, along with my experiences with him on Maui, that makes him a model for any of us, even though he didn't live as a family man. And by that I mean even though he wasn't married with kids of his own. But he, he did spend time with his family in a different way. He had two brothers, an older one who was married with three children and a younger one. And it was with the... Um, three children, and one of the younger brothers that I stayed with in Calcutta. Manindra was really easy to be with. He wasn't withheld in his manner as monks are supposed to be, especially around females. Yet he was neutral. He, w- he didn't... Um, sex was brought up earlier. He didn't put out those kinds of vibes. And um, I remember some women telling me how they felt really comfortable being around him because he was kind of neuter. He was completely devoted to the Dhamma, but that didn't mean he didn't enjoy himself. He loved every new adventure offered to him. Manindra was Manindra, always his own man, no matter what the situation. So I'd like to share a few stories that exemplify uh, renunciation in his life. Some of the anecdotes come from a chapter on Nekama that is associated as, I think you said that earlier, Kim, a right intention on the Noble Eightfold Path and with the Parami. So Manindra was clear early on that letting go led to greater ease. For him, Nekama or relinquishment did not equate with severe deprivation and denial. This was not about hair shirts or flagellation, as we've read about um, in medieval monastics in, uh, in Christianity in Europe. He was not austere, and he, and he wasn't an ascetic. He lived a very simple life, but he wasn't austere. He didn't have a house of his own, and he lived a precarious existence financially, He had no institutional support. He had no secure position. Yet he was the most joyful person you could ever imagine meeting. Renunciation for him was actually something positive. There was no particular food, dwelling, modern convenience, special status, or wealth that was as desirable as the freedom of Nibbana. It's why he used to ask his students, There's no pizza in Nibbana. Are you still interested in it? (laughs) Because, you know, these young young Westerners were involved in all kinds of things. And uh, he was asking them, you know, are you willing to give up some of these things for a higher good? In other words, are you willing to give up something of lesser value and satisfaction for something of much greater value and fulfillment? Would you choose that which can lead to greater happiness rather than a momentary pleasure? And there's a particular incident that probably everybody here can relate to, especially since chocolate was brought up. 
I was shocked when I finally had to get reading glasses. In Sarnath, I was very fond of sweets. I used to go to Varanasi, and he did this on foot, six miles away just to get some. It was disturbing for me, but there was a hankering to eat them. One day I thought, I have to finish with this somehow. So I went to a big Bengali sweet shop, the best one, and I bought several kilos of all kinds of sweets. You know a kilo is 2.2 pounds. I wanted to eat as much as I could. I went to a tree outside town and sat down under it. I thought, I'm not going to give any portion of this to anybody. I will try to eat the whole thing. But when I opened the bag, the various smells of the sweets all together made me sick. I tried to force myself to eat. I told my mind, you, mind, you are always troubling me to eat sweets. Why not eat this now? I felt a vomiting sensation from nausea, and I could not eat anything. I said, from now on, I give up this habit. So Menindra explained that the sense pleasures we crave, whether of sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch, are like a mirage. On a sunny day at noontime, if you look in the distance, it appears there is water. But as you go nearer and nearer, you know there is nothing. It is empty. So everything is like that. From childhood, we go after this color, after this sound. Oh, this looks good. All these years, we have been looking outside only, going after these sense pleasures. We misunderstand because we think something is better there. If daily we are mindful, fully hearing the sound or tasting the sweet, we see that it is empty, like a bubble arising and vanishing. Once you understand, you get tired of running after this. Greed keeps the mind unbalanced. On account of greed, there is great suffering. And when something unpleasant comes, then hatred comes. When we understand this, there is the end of suffering. Unless one is fed up, disgusted, detachment never comes. And detachment brings liberation. Detachment brings deliverance. Manindraji clarified that this disgustedness that leads no longer that leads to no longer hankering after something is not the same as aversion or hatred. Rather, it's something that results from seeing the illusory nature of sense objects. And Manindra, uh, he showed renunciation in other ways. You know, it doesn't have to be only about sweets or sex or alcohol or money or whatever it is for you. I remember one woman relating the following story to me. She and Manindra were in a room, and they were discussing some aspect of Dharma when a young man came in. And I don't remember now whether he had done something wrong or he hadn't, he hadn't managed to do something that Manindraji requested him or he had done it in an untimely manner. You know, he didn't do it when he wanted it. But Manindraji got upset. And she watched as this deep red flush, this anger suffused his face. 
And then she watched him consciously let go of it through mindfulness. And he transformed that anger into kindness toward the young man. He was not willing to be overtaken by a negative emotion that would affect everyone involved. He stopped in his tracks, renounced the anger, just let it go, and turned into a positive emotion. That's real renouncement. I mean, you can give up your sweets and so on, but to be able to, in the moment, use your mindfulness to renounce a negative emotion like that. And, of course, that red, angry face was now suffused with a big smile. I could tell you stories for the rest of the day, but other people are going to speak. So these are just two instances one of something material, the sweets, and one of something mental or emotional, in which Manindra demonstrated giving up, as the Dhammapada says, a lesser happiness for a greater one. But the giving up extended far and wide. By not speaking ill of others, he renounced unwise speech. By generating loving kindness, he renounced hatred. By developing compassion, he renounced indifference. By giving freely wherever he saw a need, he gave up greed, and so on. By cultivating mindfulness, one gives up walking through life half asleep. A lot of people are sleepwalking. We know that. So every chapter gives examples of how cultivating positive qualities can equate to renouncing negative ones. You can, I, I think because of the negative association with the word renouncement in, in the English language, sometimes it's hard to see that the other side of the coin is cultivating these positive qualities. And by doing that, you don't have to feel that like you're in a state of deprivation or denial because by cultivating, you're then automatically renouncing. And that's what Manindraji did. Anyway, I could give many more examples, but I'd like to point out something perhaps unexpected about renunciation, at least as Manindraji expressed it in his unique style. And he definitely had a unique style. um, Renunciation does not mean having an attitude of scarcity. I think that's why a lot of people think renouncement is um, about just being so without, you know, that your life is empty. Manindra admitted to indulging in and enjoying the fine benefits provided by hosts around the world because people invited him to teach in different countries. But he was never sad to be in India without those luxuries. He just didn't hold on to them. He enjoyed them when they were offered. He was fine when he didn't have them. As Dhammarawan Chandrasiri, who knew Manindra since he was a little boy in Sri Lanka, told me, when you say Anagarika in the eastern countries, meaning Asia, it's a person who won't be traveling in jet planes. Manindraji was playing around with modern gadgets, but he didn't let them control him. And I remember Dhammarawan also telling me a story when he was a little boy and Manindraji was there visiting his family 
Some people came, brought him this beautiful gift, and then Damarwan came into the room, you know, this eager, curious little boy, and he says, oh, that's so nice. You know, he just liked it right away. Immediately, Manindraji gave it. Didn't even hold on to it, even though it had just been gifted to him. Immediately, he gave it. He renounced in the moment. Relinquished is, would be a better word. Basically, Manindra felt free to take things or to leave them. Sometimes when offered better or bigger living quarters, he declined, choosing the smaller, more modest place. And there are a couple of stories about that. Manindra did have preferences, as we all do. He may have been demanding sometimes about his tea or food or towels. He was very neat, tidy, and clean. And so he was... Sometimes people thought he was being a little persnickety. But when things couldn't be exactly like he preferred, he invariably accepted the situation and said, okay, okay, and let it go. I remember Kamala telling me a story. Um, he, would be, he was at the house, and she was gone during the day working, and she didn't have time to prepare a meal, and there was just some cold leftover pizza and it was really not meninges (laughs) it was far from being his um, preferred food but she just said to him meningeji I'm so sorry but you know this is all I have right now and he said okay okay and ate the pizza Professor Tara Doyle who knew meningeji in the early years in Bodh Gaya she was uh, she helped establish the uh, Buddhist Studies Exchange Program there. And she said, at the big level, he seemed to have been pretty free. And in the little things, he was particular. I share this with you because even though Manindra was deep into renunciation on the path, that didn't mean he was perfect. He still had his own personality, his own ways, his own preferences. Govinda Barua, Manindra's younger brother, told me that although Manindra lived simply, and he did live very simply, he did not renounce quality. In fact, he had pretty high standards. Govinda said, if somebody brought him a rickshaw or taxi that was shabby or unclean, he would say, what are you bringing me? Why couldn't you get a nice clean one? He always believed in having the best and also taking others in comfort. And, uh, I want to talk about one last thing before I conclude, and that is that he also believed in giving up self-hatred. And I want to bring this up because it's been a big issue in the West that people can express loving kindness, you know, to do for others, but have many people have had quite a challenge in cultivating loving-kindness toward themselves. So I just want to share a few words that Meninja said. Because he expressed the importance of self-acceptance and self-love. If I do not love myself, I cannot love others also. If we really love ourselves, we cannot think wrongly, cannot talk wrongly, cannot act wrongly. If you know how to love yourself, then you do not bring hatred anywhere. So to conclude, 
I'd also like to share a few comments from some teachers. They reinforce the idea that lay life in the Dharma can be just as valuable a path as monastic life. Because Meninja wasn't exactly a monk, but sort of was, and wasn't exactly a householder, but sort of was, Christina Feldman said, this in-between status inspired many students. As a non-ordained figure, he embodied an important bridge, and yet within that, he was so committed and undissuaded in his path. Another person noted that we tend to set up a false dichotomy between a monk and us so-called regular folks. We might think, oh, if I really had my act together, I'd be meditating somewhere as a monk. Manindra's in-between status set an example of someone whose spiritual development was not dependent only on sitting on a cushion in a monastery, but is something that can take place in every moment of our daily life. As Jack Cornfield mentioned to me, Meninja was a really important example for the Western Sangha because he supported many of the best things that were part of what we were creating with a Dharma community. Open-mindedness, curiosity, graciousness, deep devotion to Dharma, and that you don't have to be a monk to do it. By his presence, by his words, by the way he was, he supported us all in doing it. And Lama Suryadas added his recollection. Uh, he added his recollection of Manindra as a renunciate. He didn't have much stuff with him. He had this one bag that he carried around. But his stature, the breadth of his heart and mind were huge. And no big deal. No big show. He was really a model of how to be in the world, but not of it. And he didn't have a monastery. He carried his own sila, samadhi, and prajna with him. He was his own floating Buddha field. In this way, Manindra has shown all of us how to be on the path, to renounce what is unwise and unwholesome, and to embrace what is wise and wholesome with each step that we take. As a renunciate, Manindra did not let go of everything especially his books, only that which was superfluous and unwholesome to his life in Dharma. Relinquishment was not a rejection of the cornucopia the world offers. Rather, it was a means that moved him toward contentment. Instead of the restlessness of wanting this or that or the anxiety of keeping and protecting it, he felt the ease of not grasping. He gave freely of whatever he had and thereby gained peace of mind. Thank you. If you have any questions. Uh, Where where are you from? Where am I from? Do you live in this area? No, um, I I did live in the Oakland Hills for a period and used to be able to come over fairly frequently. But I live at the Sea Ranch, which is almost four hours north of here. Unfortunately not. For the first time in my life, I don't have my own sitting group. I have a, I have a lot of other things, though. And so I, I sometimes fly to places. <laughs> yes? Um, 
uh, some, maybe some others of us here were there also. I want to give another example. Um, Biku Analio, or Analio mm -hmm. uh, did a retreat at IRC a year and a half ago or so. And he, started, he was teaching to us, and he started talking about the death of his sister. And he started to get very tearful and fill up with you know, grief. And he just stopped, and he said, I need to sit with this for a moment because this is not where I want to be. You know, I, I want right. to teach with you. And so we all were privileged to watch mm. him change from that place of deep sorrow yeah. into being really present with us again through his mindfulness. And it happened quite quickly. I, it was really astounding to me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that example. That's beautiful. Yes, somebody who knew Manindraji quite well. More of a comment. I just first, just thanks so much. It's just so touching to hear you speak and share the recollections. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to share. If you haven't read Mirka's book, it's awesome. It's so <laughs> good. Um, I've read it almost twice now, and I knew Manindraji, and it just it, not only is there just so much. Um, joy in the reading of the story and, and the stories in it, but there's just really powerful teaching, as you heard from just the two little bits that she she mentioned. So if you haven't read it, I just really deeply, highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, take another moment. Um, I don't, was it you, Ruby, or you, Kim? I can't remember now, but one of you talked about um, uh, you know, not thinking about lay people as attaining, you know. Uh, and this was not true in Manindra's experience. One of the stories in the book is about Joseph walking through the villages around Bodhgaya with Manindra. And he would point out lay people, simple, uneducated villagers. And he would point out that they had attained to one level or another. And then um, I went to Burma after um, visiting Manindraji's family to see where he had studied with Mahasi Sayadaw and to go on my own retreat. And one of the people I interviewed there, she, had, she was uh, a professor and she was working and practicing with Manindra she couldn't give up her lay life. And yet, even with all these circumstances, she was able to move forward on the path as well. So it's not that as a lay person, it can't happen, that it only can happen in a monastery. Manindraji told lots of stories about people like that. Deepama was one of them. you know. And the other story I wanted to say, uh, tell you is... Um, See if I can quickly find this. It was um, when um, there was a there's a Burmese vihara in Bodhgaya, which is where this Buddhist studies education uh, exchange program uh, takes place. And the abbot there was quite good friends with um, with Manindraji. And at one point, he publicly said. We monks talk about not being attached to worldly life, but most of us have temples that we manage or other responsibilities. 
Manindra was truly homeless. Even though he was not a monk, he lived like a monk, and he was a better monk than some of us. <laughs> that was from an abbot. Thank you.